following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I have the privilege of introducing our speaker for today. He happens to be my husband, and I love him very much. <laughs> um, I, um, my, Pete Strube is a teacher. Um, he teaches seventh grade English at Greece Athena Middle School. Um, and he also, I happened to meet him when we were doing youth ministry together at our old church a long time ago. Um, he used to speak there to lots of the youth, and um, he's a very gifted speaker, in my opinion. Um, he does not like to receive tons of compliments, so I won't say lots of gushy things about him. Um, but I do feel like he is a man of not tons of words, but he makes his words count. So um, you'll see him often chasing our kids, Tessa and Silas, around. Um, he is a gracious father and a loving husband. And I'm excited to hear him preach. So give him a warm welcome. sweet piece of jewelry that the busy bag provided me this morning by <laughs> work with Tessa, so thanks Tess. Um, and I'm carrying way too many things. Um, I'm going to start with uh, just talking about growing up real quick. I grew up on a family farm, and I don't know if you know a lot about farming, but it is all-consuming work. It takes every part thanks. Um, <laughs> it takes every part of your life. It feels like it is your entire identity when you live on a farm or in a farm family. Um, it requires um, endurance and toughness. I saw my father work 70, 80, 90 hour weeks in the summer times getting crops in. Um, I saw my father literally be run over by a tractor and walk away without a broken bone somehow afterwards. Um, I saw him drop a bobcat bucket on his foot, smash it, and then continue to limp around for weeks afterwards because who else was going to do the work? Um, these are things that like marked and identified him. And when I thought of my father, I thought just farmer. It's what he was. It defined him. Uh, and then when he, I was 18, he left our family farm, and it felt like this jarring shift in our life. We, um, he stopped doing farming. He got a job at like a little shop working 40-hour weeks like a normal human being. He, um, we had to move from our five-bedroom farmhouse into a two-bedroom apartment because the house was owned by the farm. So we, like, we had bonfires of old furniture and threw stuff out and crammed ourselves into this little apartment. And it was like who we had been was this brand new thing and we weren't the people we were anymore. Um, I'm willing to bet a lot of you can identify with that in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a retirement or uh, whether it's you've gone off to college and the world's brand new or there's something new there or you've gotten married and your individuality is no longer a thing or you've had kids and your marriage feels like it's no longer a thing sometimes or something else where there's just a jarring shift, uh, a health problem or some, something else in your life. Um, where you feel like the person you were kind of goes away. Uh, and if you have that experience, you can probably relate some to the lectionary passage I'm using this morning. And by the way, last week I looked around and I was thinking, oh, we kept all the ages in here, and I cho chose David and Bathsheba for my story. That's fantastic. So what I'm going to do... <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole lectionary passage out loud. I'm going to retell it in my own words this morning. Um, and there's a part of it that I'm going to actually read later on. So, David and Bathsheba. It was in spring, the time of year when kings go to war. 
and David stayed back at Jerusalem and sent his armies out. He was walking along his rooftop or along his terrace or whatever it was, his fancy place. Um, and he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he asked who this woman was. He thought she was beautiful. Uh, they said it's Bathsheba, and he sent for her. She came to um, his chambers, and later she sent a message saying that she was pregnant. David, to cover up his tracks, decided that he would bring Uriah, her husband, back from war where he was fighting, give him strong drink, and send him home. This plan backfired. He slept outside the house, refusing to enjoy the comforts of home when everybody else was at war. So realizing this plan wouldn't work, David sent him back to the front lines with orders for him to be at the very, very front, where Uriah, her husband, met his demise. That's my quick retelling of the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, What I want to look at first is David's life leading up to this. And a few weeks ago, Carrie gave us an introduction into uh, David and Goliath and that story. Um, David's life leading up to the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, David and David's life to David and Bathsheba, whatever. Um, it was marked by a thirst for war and a thirst for righteousness. Um, he wanted to defend God at all costs and defend God against all the people around them, all the nations around them who they saw as enemies. So that's what David's life was about. There was the David and Goliath story where he stood up. He was the only one brave enough to stand up and defend God's name against these outsiders. Um, we, after that, um, David became so famous for her, his exploits as a warrior that they had a saying in Israel that David has killed his thousands, or sorry, no, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, which King Saul did not like very much and sent armies after David and David's men, and there was kind of a split Um, when David eventually became king, he was just um, famous for uh, their ability to conquer and defeat the other nations around them. So David's life leading up to this point was marked by this war and this thirst for righteousness and for defending God. I personally can remember when I feel like my life, not marked by war, was, was marked by this idea of defending God um, and like it's a contest or like I need to score points for Jesus and that I'm trying to win something or win souls in this idea. Uh, first example that came into my head, and I, I picked mostly benign examples, but my, my typical dressing style is this, a t-shirt with nothing on it at all, and then just plain pants. But in high school, I felt the need, like, if I'm a Christian, I have to wear Christian t-shirts, correct? Like, this is part of the deal, because this scores points for Jesus, and our friends will get saved immediately if we wear Christian t-shirts. So, the one that I remember most that I chose to wear was a was a t-shirt of Jesus doing push-ups with a cross on his back. Um, and I thought to myself, well, clearly this will win people because Jesus is ripped. Look how tough he is. He's super cool. And um, I was wearing that t-shirt as my way of almost scoring points for Jesus. Um, I remember later that I was coordinating a youth group. And do you remember when the Da Vinci Code came out? Um, and some Christians, myself included, freaked out that like this was heresy and we were going to lose everybody and everything else. So I felt the need to like put together this message series about the Da Vinci Code and pretend that I knew what the um, uh, what uh, like the dates of all the Gospels were and that I knew the authority of all of them and that I understood everything and we could say that yes, we completely believed and trusted in all this stuff. And the teenagers listening to me, I think their eyes were rolling back in their heads while we just talked about dates and authenticity and all those things. Because I felt this need to like defend. Those are, like I said, pretty benign examples, but I don't think we have to go too far to imagine more serious examples of what happens when we think of winning and conquering in the name of Jesus. When we think of people as being other 
who need to be defeated, or when we think of souls as needing to be won or conquered, or those types of ideas, and, and groups of people become other, become enemies, nations become enemies, other religions become enemies, and these things can be pretty dangerous. War can be a useful metaphor for life. If you have cancer, I think it's completely reasonable to say you're going to battle every day, you're fighting it. Um, there's other times when war can be a completely reasonable metaphor. I think for people, though, whose ultimate goal is that our swords would be beaten into plowshares and who follow a Jesus who told Peter to put down his sword because if you live by it, you die by it, the war shouldn't be our overarching metaphor for life, that there's, there's better ones to choose. So, going back to the story of David, the part that I actually want to read is the very beginning of the passage. Um, and this is in the Red Bibles, it's page 248, um, and it is 2 Samuel 11. And I'm only going to read the first handful of verses. Second Samuel 11, verses really just 1 through 2. <laughs> In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Um, And that's just where I'll stop. The thing I want to point out is that David was at home at the time when kings go to war, the time of year when kings go to war. David stayed back in Jerusalem. Um, And... I've read this before, and it's always struck me as interesting that he stayed back, and then this happened after he stayed back. Um, And I think I had less sympathy on him when I read it before, but as I was reading back through, I noticed a few chapters later, it says that David actually did go to war with them again, um, and they fought the Philistines, but it talked about how David grew weary in the middle of battle, and his fellow soldiers told him, you can't come fight with us anymore because we don't want you to die out here. In other words, I think David was getting old he couldn't go to war anymore. He couldn't do the things he could have done or that he did before. He was no longer the mighty warrior that he once was. He was aging. He was weary. And honestly, part of me wonders if he was a little bit weary of war as well. When I read some of the chapters that follow this, he's doing some things that don't quite sound like the fearsome David that was there before. His house gets kind of messy. His son Absalom rebels against him. Um, when Absalom's rebellion is over, instead of taking vengeance against the people who were like fighting against him, he pardons them. He gives war reparations to a group of people called the Gibeonites who are living within Israel and kind of makes up for what had been, what wrong had been done to them. David seems to have a shift, not just in his age, but a little bit also maybe in his mentality regarding war. Um, this also I can somewhat relate to. Uh, my, probably as you could tell by the way I was talking about things from earlier when I was wearing my t-shirts and talking about Da Vinci Code and everything else, my, my thoughts and attitudes have somewhat shifted about the way that I view things in terms of uh, life being a war or life being something to conquer. Um, so I can relate to this for David as well um, with what he's thinking. My time at Artisan, the two years that my family has been here at Artisan, Um, I've mostly just been a spectator. This is far and away the most involved I've been at Artisan in this moment. Um, And I've mostly just been watching things happen. It's the longest I've gone in my adult life, is just a spectator at church and not being involved. 
I realize that saying this from a stage is completely stupid because somebody will probably like try to sign me up for something by the time I walk out, like <laughs> openly admitting that, uh, well, whatever, it's okay. So, um, but I, I've mostly been a spectator and watching, and it's not because I don't want to be involved here. I don't like this place. I absolutely love this place. Um, but I felt confused, like a little bit like David wandering around on that terrace or wherever he is looking around feeling like the thing that you once were isn't quite the same thing that you are, and you feel disoriented. You feel like things aren't the same. Um, for David, we saw what it led to for him. I don't think for everybody it leads to like a, a life-altering thing like the David and Bathsheba story, but I do think it leads to these confusions and these questions, a loss of clarity and focus about who you are and where your life is supposed to go. And I was thinking about this and realizing that... Um, Though I don't want to change and revert to old ways of thinking, I kind of miss feeling passionate in the way that I once did sometimes. Um, and that's hard for me to say because I'm, I'm admitting that I don't feel the same passion sometimes that I used to. I, I, I miss the feeling that if I went a day without reading my Bible that I was losing oxygen or that if I went a day without prayer that I was like missing my meals. I don't have those same feelings anymore and sometimes I wonder what to do with this. I've shifted and I can't just like pick this up and suddenly start up those same feelings again. So my question this morning is, what do we do with that? And like I said at the beginning, there's all kinds of examples of this. You've changed, you've moved to a new station in life, and something's not quite the same. Uh, maybe you've lost some of the same feelings or passions or love or fire or whatever it is that you've had. Or maybe you haven't and it's just another type of shift, but you can still relate to this. Um, so the question is, what do we do with that? Um, I'm going to try a um, choose-your-own-adventure at this point in the message. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. So I couldn't decide which, um, which thing to go in next. They both have the same exact point. But I can either talk to you about the Odyssey or the Disciples. So raise your hand if you would like to hear about the Odyssey. I'm not counting. I'm trusting that it'll hopefully be clear. Raise your hand if you'd like to hear about the disciples. Ooh. I, it was clear for the Odyssey, so I don't know, I don't know what that says. Um, before I tell you about the Odyssey, I'm going to tell you that I'm stealing these ideas from Richard Rohr's book, um, Falling Upwards, so this part about the Odyssey. Uh, if you can remember all the way back to ninth and 10th grade English class, you might remember the story of Odysseus going on um, a pretty wild journey to return home from the Trojan War. Okay, so he has been off and gone and fighting long enough for his um, small son to have become an adult. He's been gone that long. Um, there was nine years of fighting in the Trojan War, and he's trying to make his way back home. He gets um, stuck on islands with um, beautiful women who won't let him go weird, but that's what it is. Um, and he, he has to face uh, the Cyclops who traps them in um, a, a cave with goats and um, he cannibalizes some of his, some of his fellow uh, men who are on his ship. He loses a lot of his close friends. He's tempted by sirens and other things along the way. Uh, it's this difficult journey and he finally makes it back home. But when he gets home, he has another journey that he has to go on. Um, so I'm going to read, the, this is, I'm reading from Richard Roy's book, but this is straight out of the Odyssey, that there is a, a man named Tiresias 
in the under uh, in Hades who Odysseus meets with and gives him this prophecy. He says, "When you get home, you will take your revenge on the suitors of your wife, and after you've killed them by force or fraud in your own house, you must take a well-made oar and carry it on and on till you come to a country where the people have never heard of the sea and do not even mix salt with their food, nor do they know anything about ships and oars that are as the wings of a ship. I will give you this certain token which you which cannot escape your notice." A wayfarer will meet you and will say, your oar must be a winnowing shovel that you have got upon your shoulder. On hearing this, you must, must fix the oar in the ground and sacrifice a ram, a bull, and a boar to Neptune. Then go home and offer hecatombs, 100 cattle, to the gods in heaven, one after the other. And as for yourself, death shall come to you from the sea, and your life shall ebb away very gently when you are full of years, and peace of mind, and your people shall bless you. And that I have said will come true. So, a few points, and if you missed that whole thing, I'm going back over it. It's okay. So, um, first of all, there's another journey. In other words, he originally thought he was just heading home. He thought that's what the whole thing was about. He thought he was just getting home. This was his fight. This was the thing he was doing. And then he got there, and that wasn't it. There was another thing for him to go, go do. And that other thing to go do was to leave his little isolated island of Ithaca, and go back to the mainland, connecting his single part to the whole of everybody else. Additionally, he took with him his oar, the thing that had been carrying him along on his first journey, and when he got to where he was going, he was required to bury that thing that had carried him on his first journey. In other words, the things that worked for him in the first part of life aren't the same things he needs later on in life. In addition, when he was there, he had to sacrifice a bull. Hold on, let me get him right. A bull, a, a ram, a bull, and a boar. Um, things that symbolize this like immature, aggressive, male, youthful energy were the things that he had to sacrifice. In other words, this first half of his life, he had gotten through um, by just questing to get back home. He was aggressive. He fought his enemies. He fought through the whole thing. He made mistakes and everything else, and he got there. But then he had to go on this um, more inner journey where he'd be going, seems alone, and getting rid of the things from the first part of his life to focus and become a person who could be peaceful and at home with his family at the end of this. Not the great warrior who started out the thing, but a man at peace at home with his family at the end of this after all. So we, from this and the disciples' story was going to mirror it of this second journey after Christ had died, that they thought that they were going to become sitting on thrones with Christ, ruling a kingdom of Israel on earth. And they actually had a different journey that was planned that they didn't realize. We, I think, have similar things. We go in life in one direction, then suddenly something happens in our life, and we have a new journey to go on that's not the one that we planned, and that a lot of times requires a lot more inner work and actually carrying out the teachings of Jesus instead of the, hmm, I don't have a thing to say here that I've thought through, so I'm going to be careful about what I say. Um, We need to carry out the teachings of Jesus instead of just being aggressive like people who are at war in the second part of our life, where we connect these things that we've learned to who we actually are as a person. Um, My father today is is not perfect. I mean, he tries, but he's not perfect. But he, um, no longer a farmer has way more time in his life. He's a person of way more peace 
of way more time and energy to spend with people. Instead of working 80 or 90 hour weeks, he can spend time with my kids. Um, he can spend time with my sister's kids. He has time to make a five foot potato gun and shoot it off while the grandkids watch. Because why not? Why wouldn't you do that? He has time to do other things that, um, that he enjoys, to volunteer his time, um, to, to do service projects for people. Um, and this is part of the journey of his second part of life. It's a much calmer, more focused second part of life, though still busy. Um, I was asking him, we are working on painting a rental house that they own this summer, and we were up on our ladders, and he was asking me what I was going to talk about today, and I told him what I was going to talk about, um, and he said, you know, and this is going to sound super simple when I say it, he said, you know, it's really just about rolling with it. Um, and that sounds perilously close to me telling you that, like, the point of this message is that when life gives you lemons, you should make lemonade or something like that. But he really said that you should just roll with it. In other words, he said when he left the farm, a lot of people would have been so focused on what they lost, on what was gone. And he said that he and my mother just took it as, okay, this is the new thing, and we're going to go do it. Um, and they've been able to have a second part of life journey that I would hope would happen for me someday. So as we're thinking about this and the things that have maybe sidetracked our lives or taken us aside, um, I think I'm essentially saying that uh, we are in a good spot, even when it doesn't seem like it, because we're in a spot where we're entering a second part of life journey that might look different from what we planned, but has a lot of its own rewards. So as we're thinking about this, um, we're going to turn to the communion table and remember that in all of these journeys of life, um, we are invited to this table by the same Jesus who's been with us all of our life. Um, Jesus who sat at the table with his disciples before that they were going to go on their new journey that they didn't fully understand yet and invited them to partake of his body and blood. Here, Artisan, this is an open table and anybody is invited. Um, if you feel like you would like to follow Jesus, that you are trying to um, become more like or know Jesus, um, you are invited to this table. There is um, bread, gluten-free bread, wine, and juice labeled for you to make nice, clear choices. Um, and after I'm done praying, if you have kids in, in the service over there, you can go get them and come back. Um, so I'll pray for us as we close. God, we thank you so much for um, the stories of the Bible, for uh, the people in our lives who um, inspire us. God, we thank you for this table, this communion table. Christ, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your love for us that is never ending. Um, as we partake, I pray that our minds and hearts would be with you. Amen.
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.